Welcome to the Breaking Starts Podcast, where we teach you how to exit the matrix, take control of your career so that you can be a part of tech's global revolution. For those of you that are listeners of the podcast, you know that the universal language in tech is code and that tech is no longer an industry anymore. So for those of you that are new or for those of you that are current listeners that want to learn how to speak the language of code and and build your own apps and become a software engineer today, make sure you download the Career Karma app so you can connect with people that have done it before and the right training so that you can not just get into a job, but have a support system that's with you for the rest of your life. I'm really excited about the interview today with Phaedra Ellis Lampkin, CEO of Promise, because we're not just going to talk about her company, um, but we're also going to talk about power. We're going to talk about how to build power, take control of your career, and also tech's invisible workforce. For those of you that don't know, the overwhelming majority of black and Latino workers in Silicon Valley start off in blue collar jobs. So if you are someone that serves free food to people inside of tech companies, but you got to pay for the food yourself, this episode is for you. If you're someone that drives the free shuttle for workers that are working in tech, but you got to pay for your own commute, this episode is absolutely for you. And if you're anybody else that's working as a contractor for a tech company, you're trying to figure out how to level up or you're worried about being automated out of your job because of technology, this episode is for you so you understand how to level up. And if you want to learn more, check out the other episodes, like our page on Facebook, join our community, leave us a review, positive or negative, send us an email at Archer Rubin or teamware at breakingstars.com or careerkarma.com. Without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Archer, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, we're out here on a Sunday. It's really nice out. And we're finally in our new headquarters. We've been interviewing guests after guests today. But today we have a really special guest who actually was with us from the conception of the podcast before we released our first episode she was there supporting us so we're really excited about uh finally <laughs> having her on the show but ruben can you please introduce the guest yeah phaedra means a lot to me and when he talks about the beginning for sure i was actually working for her while uh, we launched the podcast she was the leader of the south bay labor council managing over one hundred ten thousand members but also She's going to tell you a little bit more about how what she did as my boss, as head of care at a startup called Honor. I mean, before tech, she was a CEO of Green For All and is known as an icon in the music industry because she helped Prince get his master's back when she was his manager. This was legendary because she did this without a legal background. Today, she is the CEO of Promise, which is a startup that's using technology for good to change the criminal justice system. Phaedra is a student of power that taught me that organizers are magical people, the power of the matriarchy tech's invisible workforce, and how tech has transformed the music industry. Also, for those of you that don't know, Phaedra hired former podcast guest Rita Henderson, which is episode 23, and Natasha Viana, which is episode 37. But before we get into this, Phaedra, why don't we uh, start by you kind of like telling us what your first impression was of me when I joined Yeah, And welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. So my first impression of you was, I thought you were magical. And uh, I was excited because I knew you were a hustler. I thought you were a little arrogant, which I think tech does to people. Yeah. <laughs> and but I thought you were magical, and I thought you would be amazing. And what I appreciated is I think I probably gave you strong feedback. Yeah, and you took it and incorporated it. And I was like, I think when you're a manager, you want to find people you're genuinely excited to work with because uh-huh. you want to see their greatness manifest. Uh-huh. Because then it's like no matter what happens in the place you get to be connected to people who will manifest into greatness. Yeah. And so I felt like I thought that would happen with you. And I think I'm always excited to do that because then you're building your community and your community lasts longer than the place you work. Yeah. And I appreciate you pouring into me so much. And you taught me the power of the organizer. Yeah. And when we think about organizing, can you explain what an organizer is to people that don't know what that is and why it's important to think about as we're building like tech companies? Yeah. 
I um, was in the labor movement and the people I was always most impressed with were people who were organizing themselves and their community. And so my first campaign was in on a in-home supportive services, which is home care. And the way I saw my first organizer was I met this guy, Bill, he was taking care of his Mm ex-wife and I was trying to get him to join the union. It was $7 a month. And I was like, your life will get better. And I could not get him to join. Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize he didn't have the $7, right? He was only getting paid for a small amount of the work he was doing. And even though he knew that the $7 would be an investment in getting better wages and benefits, he couldn't afford it. Like it was a, it was just not an option. And then I watched him enroll other people. Interesting. And to me, someone who can make a decision that this is what's right to better their lives, even when they think it might have a consequence, yeah. and then enroll other people in that vision and improving their own lives. Yeah. That to me was like the most amazing organizers because I thought that's real leadership. Yeah. Right. That's the he was taking showers at the Y. He yeah. didn't have somewhere to live. And he ultimately made a decision that I I'm throwing down for seven dollars, even though I don't have somewhere to live. Because I believe it will improve my life and other people's life. And so to me, organizers are about changing the way in which you live and work and building collective power to make that happen with people who sometimes someone might look at and say they don't have power. Yeah, no, I remember. We're going to unpack power. But I remember when I did my first assessment and you asked me, how was the meeting? I Mm -hmm. said it went really, really well. (laughs) We had a great conversation. They loved me. And then you were like, did they get care? I said, no, we're going to talk later. Wasn't a good meeting. Yeah. So I've always taken that away with me. And as you think about power, that's a word that sometimes is interpreted negatively. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's helpful to unpack it. Yeah. Um, Some people say it's the ability to act. But how how do you define power and why is power important? I always think about power as choices and the ability to actually execute on those choices. Because I think when you don't have resources, when you don't have a lot of options, you feel very powerless. Like this is the only path. And so to me, I always want people to have options and choices. And and that's real power. When I can say, no, I don't want to do that. When I can say, yes, I want to do this. That is, I think, the ability. And I think, I think as folks who care about social change and who care about people of color and low-income people, I think about like what you said about going to the meeting mm-hmm. is like, we have to be you know, the most disciplined. Like I always think like if you wanted a lawyer and you're poor, I could say to you, do you want someone who is like down with you or do you want Johnny Cochran? Mm -hmm. Right. And people are like, that's what I learned early on is like, Uh no, I want the best. Right. Just because I don't have resources doesn't mean I don't want choices. And because I, we would see a lot of like young people come and they'd be like, oh, I'm dressing like I'm down with the people. And I was like, people don't want you like that. They want you to go scare the boss. You know, like it's like they want you to to translate power for them and to represent their strength. And so like when I think about it, it's like, I think just like that meeting, we should be the people that don't walk out of a meeting without delivering for our people. Yeah. And, and I remember when I first joined Honor as well, like you heard me organizing these tech events and you're like, oh, that's cool. There's a lot of black professionals that are in there. But what about like the people that are janitors? What about the cafeteria workers? What about the people doing the childcare that are within the tech companies that nobody's talking to? What about the people in the community? And you pointed me to tech's invisible workforce. So can you kind of talk about these people that people are ignoring? Yeah. I mean, so when I was in the labor movement, it started really with the janitors. And what I was struck by is that we had uh, mostly Spanish speaking janitors who were working two jobs, driving five hours away. A lot of moms and dads who were just struggling to make it living in garages and they were working on campuses like Google and not able to really afford the basics mm-hmm. and they were working for folks who had free food, but they had to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a decision about kind of who, what talent was. Mm-hmm. And so to me, like fundamentally the economy was failing. The tech economy was failing because it, it didn't rise all boats. And in fact, what happened is the way that people work changed, which is it used to be all those people were employees of a company. Now the folks that were janitors were now outsourced. And then the result of outsourcing was it created a middle person who took some of the revenue. So then the workers wages got much lower And so for me, it was like, how can we create an economy that ultimately lifts the boats of all people? And what was hard is I'd see a lot of kind of people of color when I came into tech who are like, you know, talking about just how difficult it is to be a person of color in tech, but weren't creating opportunity for the people who have the most difficult reality being in tech, which is the people who answered the phones, cleaned the floors, cleaned the bathrooms. And that if we 
didn't help lift them up, then fundamentally we weren't successful. Yeah. What is your view on uh, like kind of the debate between contractor versus employee? Because it sounds like with a lot of these bigger tech companies, the way they've kind of gotten around providing all these benefits to their entire workforce is by separating folks who are providing services, like maybe they're working in the cafeteria or janitors and categorize them as, as contractors through like a third party that provides the vendor, quote unquote. And this way, they there's like a separation between who gets the benefits and who has to pay for it. So someone who has so much, so many years of experience in the labor movement, like, and there's so many new companies that are now categorizing their employees as contractors. What's your view on this? And where do you see this going? Yeah, well, I probably have a mixed view. And so one is what I like about being a contractor is that someone can work more than 40 hours a week with sometimes out getting overtime. Because what happens is like in home care, you might have because they're trying to keep someone under overtime, I might have to work for multiple companies. And so it creates a lot of chaos. And so what I liked is the ability to make more money, to not be limited by overtime. And I think contracting works great in a system where the actors are good. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a brilliant system for because American labor law hasn't caught up. And so there aren't a lot of choices. It's like employer or contractor. So I really like the vision of contractor. I think when there's good actors, the practical problem is there's not enough of those good actors. And so basically being an employee, you have a social safety net. So if you get hurt on the job, you have workers comp. And for people that do service sector work, it's really important. And so I'm probably hopeful mostly that the way that uh, American labor law works will change so that there's some ability to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And we're about to, we're, uh, we're about to talk more about kind of your tech journey. But before we do that on the topic of um, contractors and employees, I think everyone's starting to see the strand in like on-demand workforce. And usually those folks uh, don't have the same benefits as the people who work like building the tech platforms at these companies. So what is your take on uh, kind of the growth and what, I guess, what are the prospects if you're driving for Uber, or if you're performing the on-demand work when you retire, or like, how do you best prepare for those like later stages in your life? Yeah. You know, I think the part of the challenge is, right, when you look at how you build a company, right, I run a company, is that the typical model in tech is you pay people a lot in the beginning, then you attract them, then you slowly decrease wages and pricing and then you build the middle profit, right? And so the practical problem is sometimes that's on the backs of workers, right? Or the backs of the people doing the work. And so the real question is, how do you build a profitable company that doesn't build profit solely on the kind of regression of wages over time? And so, and the reality is, how does an on-demand workforce, how does it not come at the consequence of people who are working? And so for some folks, like if I'm a college student or other things, it's like, of course, that's great. The flexibility is amazing. But there's a lot of people who that's their job. And so, and more often than not, I think you see this even not even on demand workforce. But, you know, when I was in growing up, McDonald's was where people in high school worked, right? And now because of the economy, you see adults working there, seniors working who can't afford to support. And so I just think we have to think about, you know, technology should through auto and automation should actually create opportunity to pay people better. And I think there are some some examples, I think, where people are trying to figure that out. Yeah. And for the people that don't know what a labor union is, can you explain what that is, what's happening with labor unions yeah. and just kind of how that plays into the future work? Yeah. So a labor union is basically the is when people come together to collectively bargain. And so what happens is if all of us were working at one company, instead of me negotiating individually, we would say we're going to join together and negotiate together instead of negotiating individually. And the idea is that that collective power actually allows you to have better wages and working conditions, protects you from discrimination and other things, allows you to get benefits. And so that's fundamentally what a union is. I haven't been in the labor movement now for, I mean, maybe, well, like a long time, like 10, 12 years. But I think what I remain committed to is that fundamentally the dignity of work. Yeah. And how did like working into the labor union lead to green for all and lead to your time in the music industry? Yeah. Both were through my friend Van Jones. Okay. Hey to Van. Shout out to Van. Shout out to Van Jones. So Green for All was, I was working on the stuff for then, and excited for then President-elect Obama and went to Washington, D.C., was really excited. And then I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to be in D.C. And part of that was my nieces came to live with me and that really changed my life. And I knew I couldn't be the kind of 
support they needed and also be like running around Washington, D.C. trying to be a star. And so I decided I needed to do something different. And so moved back home and took over Green Fraud and really was inspired in the way that even being in Oakland, I could help think about a vision of how to build something that was about a green economy and also creating opportunity. Because what happens, which you knew, and I saw this in Silicon Valley, I ran the labor movement in Silicon Valley. And what I saw is like this huge opportunity that was created, but a lot of folks were left behind. And so in the green economy, I was like, is there a way to build an economy in which we bring all people with us? And so that's how I got there. And I also was really interested in really the politics of love and forgiveness. And I started doing this forgiveness work. And what I realized is when we were building power, like we had this really great vote for living wage. We won and the vote was like 10-1. And someone on my team was like, I can't believe that one dude. And I was like, okay, we actually just won 10 to 1. And for all these people, like there was a guy who was a security guard who'd been living in his car and he just, his life changed. A mom who wasn't going to lose her apartment. And I was helping create a culture where instead of being like filled with the these folks just transformed their lives and we got to be part of it. It was like, how do we get that one dude and how do we build power? And so I just thought like, that's not how healthy organizations and movements are built. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that lead to the music industry? So Van was friends with Prince and he called me because he was like, Prince and I, they would have these long, beautiful conversations, but they sometimes wouldn't have outcomes, but they would make really amazing plans. Mm -hmm. And so Van was like, Hey, my friend Phaedra knows how to make stuff happen. (laughs) And so that's how we ended up. So I went to a meeting and they were like, hey, we want to do this Mm -hmm. um, thing in Chicago. And so we did the stuff in Chicago, Mm -hmm. which was essentially allowing the space to be used when he was performing to Mm -hmm. bring community groups in, talk about issues that were important. And then Prince was like, and Van were like, hey, we want you to go work with Warner Brothers on his masters. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's a master? (laughs) And, And I, of course, loved Prince. But I hadn't been a fan, uh-huh. unfortunately. So I wasn't as aware about how the music business worked. Yeah. I was like a radio fan, not a uh-huh. like student of him. Yeah. And so they told me what it was. And so we went to these things. And what was and ama- what is it, by the way? A master is your master recording. So in music, on every song, there's two sides. There's the master recording, which is the person who's singing. And then there's the written part, so which is the publishing. So Prince already owned his own publishing. He was trying to get the other half of the song, which is his master recordings. And because he had created it, sung it, done the music, it was clear that he felt like it was his and it should be. And we were able to do that. And part of what made that possible is that Prince had reached a space in his life where he was very clear on what mattered to him, which was principle more than money in the moment, more than anything else. It was, how do I deliver that? So we were able to get them very quickly. Yeah. And part of it is we were just able to, he'd been having a position where he had just continually been stopping them from making any money. And there was no way, I think, to be clear. And he hadn't used, he'd used incredible power, but I think there was a way to also use the power of saying no that he'd been using um, more. Because then we realized, we also realized that he owned his publishing. And so as a publisher, we had a lot of power. So as a publisher, for example, we pulled all his music off of streaming services, except for Tidal which then stops record companies from being able to make money. So it was like, oh, let me think about how to use power differently because you actually own half those songs and you need both those parties to do anything. Yeah. And so let's, so his publishing became independent and all of a sudden he had the power to stop them from making money anywhere they went. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you learned a lot of things on the job. You yeah. created all these, you were able to get all these connections in the music industry. You ran care at honor. Yeah. You started this new startup. Yeah. You raised money from some of the celebrities that you're connected to, yeah. including Jay-Z. And there's a lot of people that are... Can I just say I love Jay-Z? Jay-Z's dope. And the reason <laughs> I say that is not is because I think through Prince, I learned that the ability to have self-destiny was critical. Uh-huh. And I will always be grateful because Jay-Z, Rock Nation, they created a space for him yeah. where they honored him. They treated him with respect. And it was for him to get to have another black man own yeah. a company and be able to say, I respect you and you have the choice to do what you want on my platform, put the music out you want. Like that was incredible. And so I will always be grateful because he created that space yeah. for Prince, which he deserved. 
certainly, you know, but that, you know, we, Prince flew to New York to meet with Jay-Z, wow. right? It's like we flew to New York and it was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah. So I just, I have the highest respect for him because he creates the space and Desiree runs the day to day. Who's amazing. Create the space for people to actually manifest the greatest things they want in a way that gives them dignity. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are in the social justice space or the criminal justice space that want to break into tech. And a lot of times they don't have a lot of options. Yeah. You've helped hire a lot of people from non-traditional backgrounds and you have an incredible ability to assess talent uh-huh. from different backgrounds. What traits do you look for in these people and how, what kind of guidance do you give people that might have like a nonprofit background that want to break into tech that have limited options? Yeah. And I appreciate that. Usually what I'm looking for is people who are hungry because I think hunger fills in the holes of skill mm-hmm. if people are really committed. Mm-hmm. And what I find is when people aren't hungry, that's where the consequences is when people are like, oh, I want to like the reality is for a person of color entering tech that comes from a non-traditional standpoint, you're already walking in screwed and people don't have high expectations of you. At least in my experience, I don't yeah. know what it's like everywhere, obviously. And so it's like you have to be like working twice as hard to be half as equal. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, you constantly just be okay with the fact that you are just going to work. And then once you get there, you have to create opportunity for other people and then you have to move as a team. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, okay, I'm looking for people who are going to communicate like I do. So we're, I'm not in some weird world where everyone's like, because you know, sometimes tech is very like, you work at McKenzie, you go to Stanford Business School, like it's a very specific thing. And it's like, but if I could make the case for people who I thought would be incredible, then you fundamentally change the way the system works. And then they go out into the world and do other things. And so I think I assess hungry people who are hustlers, also people who can take feedback, because the biggest difference, I think, between people who, like, I can't work with someone who's sensitive, really sensitive. Yeah. Because I want to be able to move quickly. Yeah. And so I have to say like, oh, that was like, no, you oh, didn't yeah, have a good me meeting. Right, you me, right? Like you're like, oh, I had a great meeting. Or you remember you were like, these, I remember you and someone else were like, this person, you, I said, you have to have credit cards. And you were like, no, we know for sure we're losing hella business yeah. because, and I said, no, you're not. And I said, okay, fine. You go tell me the best person who's going to give you guys credit cards. And then you go, go find them. And then you guys went, remember? And yeah, the no, remember, people yeah. were like, could you get us off the toilet? Mm-hmm. Which was amazing that you did that. And we didn't get their business. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, but you were brilliant in that you got the feedback and then you iterate it. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, check. Yeah. And then the more you work with that person, the more the people that your communication becomes easier and easier and easier. So I'm looking for people that I can move as quickly as possible with, which requires clear feedback and hustle so that they work very differently. And I would say emphasis on quickly because like usually there's a ramp up period in sales and you want to see results in the first week. Like, quick and mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't used to that but i think part of the reason yeah. why you did that is because like because i'm coming from a natural background i have to prove it because you people are taking chances on me and like i have to show show for it and i think a lot of people sometimes don't realize that when you're coming from a natural background you have to work twice as hard and so you're also training people for greatness yeah. right like i don't want to train you to be an average to good salesperson yeah i want to if we're going to do the extra work, mm-hmm. I want to train someone to be magnificent. Yep. And so if you have that same bar yep. of like, oh, I'm going to like get to like, I'm going to put myself in Salesforce. I'm going to do this average. Then you won't be magnificent. Right. Yeah. But when you left, people were like, don't leave. Let mm-hmm. me offer you oh, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so that to me is, and then you went and did amazing stuff at hustle. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's cause, yep. cause then you, cause then like, to me, my job is to train people mm-hmm. so that they're like, I gotta be on this pilot. And then yeah. when they look around, they're like, Oh, these people move hella slow. Yeah. But I'm gonna keep focus. I'm yeah. gonna keep focus. Yeah. Cause then you'll be successful. And then no one, you know, like when I was raising, I ran revenue. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, but I only ran revenue because I was like, Oh, these people aren't building us enough clients. My yep. operations team's going to go start getting clients. And then yep. we were like, Ooh, we're getting clients quicker than the sales team. Yeah. And so, now we're the sales team. Yeah. But if we had been like, okay, cool, let's be at the regular pace, I couldn't have made the case. And then when I hired, I didn't have to ask people because exactly. I was running a team. So I was like, I'm going to hire people who think like this. Yeah. And 
folks like you ended up working better than some of the folks that were like traditional salespeople who are like getting on a phone, waiting for someone to call them. You know, like I was like, we had to do kind of guerrilla sales. Yeah, you taught me the game. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the dynamic between the two of you because initially you were kind of guiding Ruben, but at the same time, you, you guys also developed a friendship and even like a peer mentorship in some ways where- She's one of my biggest mentors. Yeah, I'm not where mine. you both learn from each other. So it's interesting to see how you started out just being like more of a professional relationship and then you became friends. And I, I didn't uh, like it in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and, Ruben did not like me yeah. in the beginning. And actually had someone, do you remember you had, we will not say whose name it was, but he was like, Ruben thinks you're mean to him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like, he thinks you're hella hard. These guys remember, I used to say it all the time. Yeah, yeah he's then, like, this one actually were like, it's okay, man. Trust me. She's, she's, she's looking out for yeah. you. What I like about it too, about your relationship as well, is that you both are there to support each other and other people who are from similar backgrounds as yourself. And you're also empowering each other. Because I think a lot of people who achieve some level of success, a lot of the time they kind of, once they get it, they're like, I'm just going to hold on to it and just focus on myself. And they don't realize that by joining for, for forces with each other and lifting up other people, you're actually like creating so many more opportunities beyond just the, like yourself or even the close group of, so just, can you share a little bit about your, like what you, what you guys are doing with like your network of people and your, like other people that you're helping uplift and what type of impact are you having on like Silicon Valley and just the broad tech culture and widening the pipeline of founders and tech workers? Yeah. So I'll say one thing. I think you have to have a crew. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys are a brilliant example of that. Mm-hmm. I have the same crew for the last, like in every industry, mm-hmm. like then I'm like down, like, and I'm gonna help him. He's going to help me. Mm-hmm. It was like, and Prince was like, Oh wait, he's our, he's, he's our team. Okay, cool. We're all going to like row. And even in his passing, I'm like, I'm still got to look out for him. I'm not sharing his business. I'm not, you know, like it's like he's for us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important. And I think like, Ben Jealous, who's running for governor, has been in in my crew. And it's like, wait, when he was, I met, got honored through him because he was then mm-hmm. running the NAACP or mm-hmm. I love Lisa Jackson, who's now at Apple. And you just have like the same team and you're just committed to fundamentally uplifting each yeah. other. And we always say you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. How do you go about identifying these people and being able to maybe look at your circle And maybe some people in your circle are not like lifting you up and like being able to either distance yourself or like surround yourself with those who do lift you up. Yeah. Well, I will say you guys are amazing at this. Like, and Ruben, because I'm like old school, like if I didn't know you 10 years ago, I'm not sure I even want to talk to you. Um, (laughs) It takes a lot for me to really have them at that level. I think I loved Ruben Um, and I've met some folks, but it wasn't like I was like Ruben where he's like, and I met 50 people this year. And I'm like, so now two more this year that I really like. But I will say this. I do think that a fundamental difference is having a team and people cheering for you. And one thing I think is, is the hard thing about things like feedback is there's feedback that's mean and there's feedback that's like, I'm committed to your success. And that's hard sometimes to hear, but it's like, okay, I'm for you. So I would just say that for me, anyone who wasn't like authentically for me that I couldn't be a hot mess with, I don't mess with. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. So a mastermind. So, you know, Phaedra talks a lot about like people being down for you and she's down for me. I'm down for her. And I think that it takes a lot of time to understand when someone's down for you. I think a lot of people talk about being down for you, but you have to take some time to see if the action follows up with it. And the concept of a mastermind for us is like, people that have some level of expertise and relationships and the ability to pick up the phone and make things happen and having a group of people that you can trust that are down for you, that are willing to share things in a vulnerable way and have trust that it's not going to leak. And then that the people in the room will immediately say, okay, I can call this person. I can get this person a raise. I can, like, what are you struggling with and how can we get it done? And so, you know, organizing those groups has been very helpful. We haven't done one in a while, but (laughs) I'm glad that we're talking about this because it is something that helps keep us accountable and stay focused. And so it's been really good. And I think it's super important to have these support systems. And what I think about is like, I'm Jewish, Timur, Timur and I are both Jewish and 
traditionally, like there's a lot of anti-Semitism, but when you look around, there's a lot of Jewish people who are musicians, who are bankers. Who, and I think part one of the secret sauce is that the support system is there. And because someone else is Jewish, you go out of your way to help them. And over time, like that system builds power and it gives you influence. And joining forces is usually like the best way to ensure that other people have opportunities that come from the similar background. When I see you guys coming together and kind of joining forces and sharing resources, I see this as like an amazing opportunity in tech where there's a lot of biases and a lot of discrimination and a lot of excuses for like no pipeline. I think what you guys are doing together now could set an amazing road for not just increasing the pipeline, but literally in like 20, 30 years, having a majority of tech workers be completely different than the, dem- the current demographics in tech. So I'm really inspired by what you're doing and I hope you continue doing that. Thank you, man. I mean, yeah. I, I just know anytime I text Phaedra, no matter what time of the day, literally I see bubbles and she's <laughs> typing. Yeah. Like I hit her up yesterday to come through here and it's done <laughs> and she's in Fairfield. Like, yeah. It's not, that's not normal. And vice versa, she asked me to do something, boom, it's done. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and that's something that's very important because you need to be able to go to sleep and rest that like knowing that something can be delivered or, or just like, you just got to know that it's kind of like if I'm managing someone, the person that I'm managing, I want to know that if I give them a project to do and they say they're going to do it, it's going to be done. But this is deeper than that where it's just like we're always down for each other. We're always going to support. So yeah, likewise. And I think that like a lot of times it, it's a big focus on minorities, but I think everybody has different, like, for example, the eight heroes group that's here, they're Brazilians. They're tied to the whole Brazilian community. There's a lot of Brazilian founders that are here and a lot of Brazilian people that want to break into tech. And so reaching to them and organizing them, I think is a very important thing. And that's how you start building power. It's so funny. Cause I said to them, I was like, girl, you need, you know, you need to hook up. There's a Brazilian founders at YC. Like there's mm-hmm. like, just by building your own community, you create, that's the fundamental part of power. It's like, if I organize by that collective power, I made myself more powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people sometimes think. It's like, it makes them weaker. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, if you actually build that community, Mm -hmm. you're far more powerful than when you're trying to do it by yourself. And something else that like you taught me as well is like a lot of times when you all are moving as a unit, as in power, and let's say that there's a meeting and I've never met Archer and Timor, Mm -hmm. and Phaedra and I have a disagreement. Mm-hmm. During the meeting, uh-huh. we should never show mm-hmm. that disagreement during mm-hmm. the meeting. Sure, yeah, because it shows weakness, mm-hmm. and we should yeah. be able to read each other to know mm-hmm. that we should talk about this at another time totally. and punt and move it to another subject. Yep. And a lot of people argue in front of other people and shows weakness. Everybody, if you haven't seen The Godfather, is a perfect example. <laughs> the Godfather, when you know he talks to the son and he says, "Like, don't ever tell somebody outside of family what you think again." Not saying oh, that, like, you know, it's just like, because he spoke out of turn and right. he messed up the whole th- situation. But anyway, I think that's one <laughs> of the biggest lessons because like a lot of times with, yeah. you know, just growing up, like not even just with business stuff, but we tend to not realize how that makes us look weak. And especially if we're trying to build power, it's important to just like move in unity yeah. and be collective because a lot of times like. Ooh, can I tell you how I see people do this and it makes them weak? Please. When they trash their boss, when they leave a company, mm-hmm. even if you hate yep. them. Yeah. It's like. To me, it's so much better. I might have, well, certainly we've all had bad experiences, but when someone comes in a meeting and they're like, and then, and then, like in an yep. interview, I'm mm-hmm. always like, like yeah. for yeah. me, I'm like, whoop, flag on yep. the play. Yep. <laughs> flag yeah. on the play. Mm-hmm. Flag on the play. It's like, you just say, you know, that it wasn't a good fit for me or for them yeah. because you think, oh, that person yeah. has integrity in the way that they're dealing with it. Instead of like, or, yeah, and even taking responsibility, like I think something a similar question that I always hear people sometimes get wrong is like when you talk about teams or like disagreements with your coworkers, yeah. and when people don't take the responsibility and they just put it, oh yeah, my boss was didn't understand this problem, so my boss was telling me to do this, but they were wrong. Like that's usually reveals that the person wasn't aware or conscious yeah. enough of that. There's certain dynamics, there's certain opinions. You need to know how to work with people, right? And if you yes. blame someone else for the disagreement, then I think intrinsically it shows that the person just is not aware about all the dynamics. Yeah. Um, you see that? Like I have friends and family members, I'm sure we all do, who are like, I've been wronged in like 50 different ways. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, you're, you're not going to be successful because if you're looking for like all of the people around you who aren't doing good, instead of like every situation being like, what could I have done differently? 
because I don't need to fix that broken human. I need to fix this broken mm-hmm. human. Yeah. <laughs> I need to like yeah. be like, okay, because they're they're their own journey. And so it's like, okay, cool. Even in that that part human, how do I need to think differently? So that's not a negative experience for me yeah. in the future. Yeah. Can you talk about leadership and then leadership as a black woman? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know them differently, so I can only talk about them probably one way, okay. which is leadership as a black woman. So leadership as a black woman, I feel really lucky that I've been a black woman because I think it has created an incredible amount of empathy for me, for people, meaning that I think, you know, what's going on for that human? Like, I don't usually think like they're awful. I think like, oh, something's going on. And it's also made me think real leaders lead from behind because some of the most magnificent black women and women of color I see like leave from behind. So like when I think about you or when I think about managing, I literally am trying to get people to be smarter than me and give them everything I know, because even if they go out in the world, they will be, even if they're not at the company, Mm -hmm. they're better than me. They're Mm -hmm. adding lessons. Like it's, but what was interesting to me, I I have to say is that is who it was easier as someone who was raising money to interact with as a black woman. Yeah. And so I thought when I was like a black woman raising money, when I had heard all of this stuff and I was Mm -hmm. like, it's going to be really difficult. And I didn't have a technical Mm co-founder. And two, then I expected two things to happen. One is I thought, because I think like I love all black people and I love all people, but I really love black (laughs) people and women and like persecuted people because I'm like, I got you, you got me. So I thought I'm going to like come out and then there's going to be like the persecuted people are going to be like, we got you. Let's just raise money. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I was ready for that. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. Yeah. And instead what happened is bros, not of course my investors, but like yeah. some have come from broy cultures uh-huh. um, and were like, okay, wait, you, you ran revenue. Oh, great. Like you did sales. Okay, cool. And that means you can raise, <laughs> you can make money. <laughs> and so that part was, was interesting to me is just is how different it was. And yeah. so, my hope is like that I think you all will do is that all of our job then is to say when we see other entrepreneurs is how do we create the space for them so that they feel like we're cheering for them, rooting for them, creating space for them because it makes you stronger. Right. But yeah, it was, it's been shocking and hiring was fascinating too. Cause you're like a black woman hiring and people are like, wait, they just see you and they're a little bit like, I got to rethink this. Yeah, And I I love how you're leading leading by example as well. Cause I think a lot of, there's a lot of like founder, like overhyped founder, um, I don't want to say porn, but like, or like there's like hustle porn where like they're saying everyone should be a founder. Just you're 20 years old, drop out of college and just go do this thing. Right. But it sounds like you actually paid your dues. Like you've worked in labor move, labor movement. You've worked for a few different startups. You've started a few nonprofits and then you kind of build your track record and no one can argue with track record as well. So, I love that you were able to like it came on time to raise money. You could actually show and say, Hey, I actually built this company. I helped them hit their revenue goals and they had nothing to say, like they had no nothing to push back on. Yeah. Um, and I wish more people kind of when when we think about encouraging people to become founders, I think we should also encourage people to acquire the skills and think about it like how can I join an amazing team? And out of that, I'll be able to start companies and have more leverage in these situations. I think it's really important that people join teams Mm -hmm. because I couldn't have just started as a founder because I don't think the world would have responded to me Mm -hmm. in the same way. I do think we have to acknowledge there's incredible luxury that people have who can just like not work and be able to support themselves, which is not everyone has, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think about the little people I'm raising, which is you think, and I think about like the people in my kids' classrooms and some of who, by the time they get to out of college, they're going to have student debt, try to help a family member and be trying to figure it out. So the idea that they can either quit their job or go work for $50,000 a year is really hard. So I think that path, I think is really important so that you can make revenue. And I was lucky that then I was in a financial place where I could take time off. And then I think when Prince passed away, it sometimes there are moments that kind of break you in life, right? Like it was a moment that broke me because I think I loved him so deeply and it was so public. And I think, and then people get to judge you who don't know you and don't know him. And I wasn't prepared for that because it's like, I, you know, you all know I'm not a very public person. And yeah. so I'm a very private person. And so it's like that core of pain just gave me way more boldness 
Because when you lose someone you love that deeply, it's just like, I can handle whatever and I don't want to not play big. And so it just made me realize. And I think for a lot of people who've experienced trauma, crisis or anything like that, at first you can't see the path because you're like, you can't afford to take the risk. And so I hope we can create a community of people who can start affording to take the risk. And what's the path look like with what you guys are doing? How did speaking of taking the risk, what were some of those people who helped you, I guess, incubate the idea and even like kind of find the courage to quit your job, like pursue this idea, knowing that there's not a lot of people who look like you who end up raising a lot of money and kind of go through it and like just to give them shout outs and then share with our listeners. So one, I was lucky that I started at Honor very early. And so I got to participate in the exec team with just the founders and myself. So I got to be part of a team of founders who were second time founders and who were very, and I had incredible space because I had experience and our team was bringing in money. And so you got to hire and you had to do what you wanted. And so I think uh, Seth, who ran the and founded the company, was incredible. I also was figuring out when I wanted to leave, I had a luxury that most people don't, which is I had time because they wanted to make sure, did I want to stay or what did that look like, which was, I think, incredible. And then I think I was lucky that I went, like, I went to YC. I had no technical co-founder. We didn't have, we just had an idea. And Michael, who runs YC, was, I think, like, you know, you got this. And I think we just were really, and then we raised money, you know, first round, let our round. Rock Nation was amazing. And we were lucky that we had investors. The K-Pours were great. And they were great because when I met with them, I was like, I want to take good capital, Mm -hmm. but I also want capital that is just like about a business, being able to be an effective business. Mm -hmm. And so part of why first round and folks like 8VC were so important to me is because I wanted people to be able to say like they have the best investors, like Mm -hmm. tier A investors. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're like doing the right thing. It's not just that they're like, it's a black woman. It's that people who make decisions based on, will this company grow? Mm -hmm. That I wanted those type of investors. Totally. And so I feel really lucky that I've had incredible investors. And I will say, I also ask for a lot of help, which I think people don't, which is like, I think as we think about fundraising, I tell my investors, you know, like I just sent a text to an investor. I was like, how can you help me this week? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I feel like obviously you're not on task yeah. <laughs> uh, this week. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I also love the mission behind Promise, which is your current startup. Can you tell the people what Promise is and what kind of, what is the mission behind so Promise really was started, you know, Diana, who's my co-founder, is a criminal defense lawyer, Van and her had started the Ella Baker Center together. And I came from a neighborhood that was, you know, very low income and my dad was really violent. And so I often empathized with the victim. I didn't think a lot. I thought like victim and perpetrator, like I didn't yep. have a, a lot of kind of empathy. And then watching both what was happening with police brutality and then learning, I think about drug and drug policy really changed my mind. And Mm -hmm. the first thing that was surprising to me is that 66% of people, it's now almost 70% of people, a county working, it's 90% of people in jails have not been convicted of the crime they were arrested for. Mm -hmm. And so these are people who are there because they're poor. And so it was to me, it's like we're creating a system and you know, who's most likely to be in jail. They don't probably have a lawyer they don't have money. And then that creates chaos. And the longer you're in, even by a day or two, mm-hmm. the more likely you are to be back mm-hmm. because you lose your housing, you lose your job. And so I thought this system is fundamentally broken because mm-hmm. bail is the way you get out right now. Mm-hmm. And all bailed is, is it's an insurance product. Mm-hmm. So you're buying insurance. But if I'm wealthy and my bail is, I go pay my money and I get the money back. Mm-hmm. If I'm not wealthy, I pay a private bail bonds company and I pay them 10%. They put the money up which is not really my yet, but it's an insurance product. And then I never get my money back. Mm. So it's a system where the poorest... So, and we had an example this last week where someone got out and the family had paid bail, but you don't get yeah. the money back. Yeah. Can you break that down again? So with these private bond companies, yeah. so if you're arrested, let's say your bail is $10,000. So as someone who is maybe poor and can't afford to, to have $10,000 just sitting around in a bank, bank account. So they go to these bond companies and how does the financing work? So what they'll say is, let's say it's $1,000. They'll yeah. say, oh, you don't have $1,000. Okay, why don't you put your house up uh-huh. and $1,000? And we'll start with payments of $50 or $100. Wow. Or it's you're basically putting all of this money towards the system and all they're doing is trying to get you to court. Yeah. And what we thought is technology could probably do just as good a job mm-hmm. of getting people to court as 
making their family kind of put up all this money or having someone sit mm-hmm. for no purpose. And so the really premise for us was that, you know, technology is really figuring out how to not just do amazing things, of course, but how to automate some things that humans do. Mm-hmm. And so this was a case where we said, look, if, for example, counties are spending on jails anywhere between 120 to $600 a night for someone who, if they had $100 or $1,000 mm-hmm. could get out, that's a stupid value proposition. Totally. And especially because two thirds of the folks that are in are nonviolent offenders. Mm-hmm. So these aren't folks like it's for women. It's mostly like be a technical violation or you didn't show up for court because mm-hmm. you didn't know. We had the way I first got really moved as we were working with clients is I knew someone and he went to court and they give you a piece of paper just for clarity. A piece of paper is mm-hmm. how it works. You get a piece of paper. He went to court. He's like, OK, I'm here. It's a 28th. And they said, oh, no, that's not an eight. That's a six. Wow. And you were supposed to be on the 26th and the court clerk said, and if you go in there, you're going to be arrested Wow! because you didn't show up for court. And so I was like, how can that be like a person who's dealing with trauma and chaos who gets a piece of paper, who comes to court, who wants to keep working? In this case, he was like, he went on the run because he was like, I can't afford to stop working. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I paid child support. His child support had increased. He'd gotten a DUI. Uh. He couldn't no longer afford the DUI classes when his child support went up. And he didn't have a lawyer. And we were able to say to him, we called the public defender. The public defender got him another court date. And then he was able to get another court date. And he got a letter that said he had another court date. But it's like when you're in that, you're scared. There's so many ways to get it wrong and only one way to get it right. 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 And when you're talking about people who are already living busy lives, working multiple jobs, they're supporting like their families. If you put someone in jail, even if they not convicted yet, you put them in jail for two months, three months, that means that they're without work. Their family's probably taking on more debt. Then it just, it messes up everyone's life. And then yep. we're saying like, how come the recidivism rate is so high, right? Right. Because you lose your, think about if you live in San Francisco. Yeah. I'm working, I'm making, let's say 20 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. I lose four days of work. Mm-hmm. So then I lose my job, mm-hmm. probably lose my job as a result, lose my housing, mm-hmm. probably destabilizes whatever relationship I was in. Mm-hmm. If I have kids, I might lose my kids because now I no longer have somewhere for them to stay. And so you're in a situation that one decision becomes a spiraling mm-hmm. um, case. And it's like, and it's our goal is like no one that I've ever talked to thinks prison makes people better people, mm-hmm. right? No one's like, oh, I went there and I just became a better person. And so the idea that then someone makes a mistake or they might not make a mistake and they've been wrongly accused. Yep. And then I'm going to create a spiral that puts me in a worse position. Totally. It's like, it's the, stu- yeah. you know, it's just so not a smart Are system. there examples of maybe other countries that handle this process better or like, are there any examples where like the criminal justice system actually gets it right and like decreases the number of people that come back? Yeah. So I would say one is I am a student, not a teacher. So Uh, One thing that I was really impressed with is like I went to a dinner with the Open Society Foundation and the woman who leads their drug policy. And what was interesting about that is like in places like Portugal where they've legalized some drug use, it's actually reduced crime and reduced drug use because then people can ask for help. And so that's really interesting. You know, most evidence based stuff about how to reduce crime and how to reduce drug use is really about support and services. It's not often about punishment. And so, and I think some of the Nordic countries are amazing. Like, and you look at the systems they are designed to make someone better able to go into society afterwards. They incarcerate a lot less folks. Mm -hmm. If you look at both kind of laws, if you look at in the UK, I remember I was in the UK when I was on the road in music and I was like outside and I was like, Oh, I don't want to go out. I mean, I can't just like walk across the street. Lauren knows what might happen. And the driver said, no, no, you're in the UK. He's like, you're not going to have anyone with guns here. Maybe someone will pull out a knife on you. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's right. Like I'm fundamentally different place. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. wild to think that like there's so many, like people talk about a lot of issues with society, but like if, what your company is working on could literally change millions of people's lives. And as a result, their families and the way entire neighborhoods will be like where they're going to end up in the next 20, 30 years. So right. can you use technology? Like, in most places I'd been, technology had not been amazing. So it's like when I was in music, it was devaluing content mm-hmm. and it was especially impactful for artists of color and artists. And then when you went into employment, mm-hmm. it was kind of decreasing the standard of living for working people. And so our goal is to be able to use technology to be a force to actually reduce 
the impact um, of a negative system. So like now the criminal justice system isn't working. Can you use technology to actually make it work better for working yeah. people? And I think, there, I think with Silicon Valley today, there's a lot of problems that a lot of smartest minds go work on ideas that are literally figuring out how to serve more ads or like, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's some companies that are trying to solve fundamental problems, but most companies are just figuring out how to get to revenue. And a lot of the times getting to revenue, it's like getting a lot of users and then showing them ads. And at the end of the day, you're, you're just switching users from one platform to the next and you're not solving, you're not using the technology piece to make people's lives better. So I really like what you're doing because like, I mean, as people who are on the sidelines watching what you're doing, like we're rooting for you Aww. that in the next like five to 10 years, you can be the example of like a, a company that actually is a like profitable entity, mm-hmm. but it also is able to like change millions of lives. So with that said, uh, we, so at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And if you've listened to our podcast, it's the portion where we ask you questions. But since our listeners want to become like you, Uh they want to know what are your strategies, your tactics, and your resources that you use on a daily basis that help you get to where you are today. So with that said, Arthur, to you. So this question takes us back to the basics and you've changed a lot of careers and transitions. So imagine you moved to a new city, you only had $100 and you were starting from the beginning again. How would you spend that $100 to get into tech? I would go volunteer somewhere. Nice. Got it. Given the fact that you are, you understand how music has, how tech says, I'd be someone's assistant. I think that's the best path. But yeah, anyway, I like that too. I like, I like that as well. <laughs> how tech has transformed the music industry and understanding how influencers influence the culture. What would be your guidance to figure out how to unify the influencers in tech to the influencers to encourage people outside of tech to break into tech? I think there has to be opportunity. Uh-huh. And so like, I think what's important is creating like authentic opportunity. I think yeah. it's, I don't think people could just go run into tech yeah. without real opportunity. Like yep, I saw like all these people when I was in the labor movement in San Jose and there was like these network systems like yeah. Cisco academies. Yeah. And then by the time people got the certification, the technology was outdated. And so you had people then in debt and the technology cycle wasn't meeting it. And so I don't think we should just say to people, go get in tech. I mean, I do think technology is going to change the way everyone works. So, you know, if you're at Kaiser, you could be an engineer if you're, you're like everywhere. So I, I think we should get people to understand technology and skills. Yeah. But I don't think everyone should try to go work at Google. Got it. No, I yeah. agree with that. So this question is around advice. So if you had, um, like a, a niece or maybe a nephew who's about 21 years old, they're about to decide maybe they're in college or they didn't go to college and they're figuring out their life. What would you advise them? And would you advise them to do tech, other industries? What advice do you have for them? So I have a niece that we raise and she is in college and I told her she had to get an engineering degree. I said, I don't <laughs> care what you made minor in. I don't care what else you do because it's like speaking a language of the country mm-hmm. you're in. And so so for me, the idea is I just want to make sure that she can compete. Mm-hmm. And so, and that she knows look at the language that's spoken. So I would say to anyone is like, you need to understand the world in which we're operating in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's why I told my brother the same thing. Right. Yeah. I was like, in, yeah. in a tech driven world, you got to speak yeah. the language of tech. Yeah. Right. And um, earlier you touched on trauma. Yeah. Which is also like part of the mastermind group. It's important to have the mo- emotional support. Can you explain what trauma is for people that don't know? And, a strategy for how to deal with it yeah. for the people that are dealing with it. Yeah. So I had trauma as a kid because my dad was very, very violent. And what I learned really early on is that when you, especially when you're under five, when you see trauma, it impact or you experience trauma, it changes the way that your brain responds. And so, because you're constantly then like preparing to like either leave or like figuring out what to do. So you, you don't calm down, right? Cause your brain is constantly in fight or flight. And so what I realized is that for me, some of those skills made me really good, right? The ability to manage chaos, the ability to be able to deal with whatever. But part of what I had to work on is I also created chaos because I knew how to manage it. And I would see other people who dealt with trauma and I would realize that they would say like, oh, like their behavior would come out in inappropriate ways. And I realized people who didn't have trauma were so healthy about like expectations. When I started working in places where people were like, 
had grown up in these like happy households with two parents. I was like, oh, note to self, they do not scream at each other. They also do not think everyone's bad or going to harm them. And I was like, oh, I have to figure out how I work and build teams like that. But it takes a lot of work because so I've been very purposeful and I'm certainly not all the way there. But as I think about hiring folks who've dealt with trauma is how do I create a safe space for them? And how do I hold them accountable to deal with their issues of trauma? Because I think people who deal with trauma can be miracles at work, but they also then can be chaos. Yeah. And so how do you help them manage the chaos? And then I just have incredible empathy because I see myself and I don't think that I knew how to deal with it. Like I was in therapy. I highly recommend therapy. I have to be purposeful. I have to, I know when I'm not sleeping, I had a baby, I stopped exercising a lot. And so I know like if I don't have the kind of like eat, sleep, exercise, go to therapy, have a good time with my girlfriends, be in love or be loved, that I'm not whole. And so I have to create organizations that create that space for other people. Yeah. And I have to be able to see people as they are and encourage other people because because I think it's such a it's it's such a hard issue to deal with. So yeah. I really just I just want to deal with it. Like I deal with it in myself and then I hopefully can help other people deal with it by creating a space because I think they can be people who've dealt with trauma are probably some of the most miraculous people I've ever met, but also the most chaotic for themselves. And so how do you create that? Because for me and other people are better than myself, I'm sure when I was in those periods, it's like I had to retrain my mind and Mm -hmm. how to retrain my mind in not a negative way. Yeah. And like in my family, a lot of people went in the military and that kind of helped them retrain it. Mm -hmm. But for me, I needed to like retrain it with like love and kindness because Mm -hmm. in my head I was like, you're fucked up. You're fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like these are all the things you have to do. And so like, we have to say to each other, like I'm rooting for you, which is why I think the collective is so important. It's like, no, like I realized the awful part of the internet Mm -hmm. is that it's like the comment section come to life. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can't read stuff because they don't know me. It's not who I am. And they don't know what I'm about. And so I just think that in this day and age, the ability to deal with trauma is critical. Yeah, 100%. In terms of like your daily routines that help you balance family, work, being a CEO, you have a lot on your plate. How important is it to you? And what strategies do you use to do that? So one, I want to talk to you guys, which we don't have to do on this podcast, but I think (laughs) you guys are brilliant about brand and I am probably the worst person I know in that like, I, this is only the second thing I've done while I've been a CEO of a company that's raised a lot of money. And because it just feels like to me, it's draining because I'm an introvert. And so, and you guys are brilliant at that. So, but my daily routine is one is I always want to be a really good mom. Mm -hmm. And, and so I want to be there in the morning when my daughter wakes up. That's really important to me because I think if I'm not there when she wakes up, it means her day isn't really a great day because she Mm -hmm. feels like it's, she's thrown off. So I try to be there when the kids leave in the morning Mm -hmm. and then I want to make sure I'm there before they're going to bed because I don't want them to think like, oh, Mm -hmm. I just come when it's time for bed. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if I'm right with my kids, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's my ultimate team team. And my partner, who I'm sometimes less right with, (laughs) but I try. (laughs) And so being present for my kids is really important. Mm -hmm. I really like loud music. And so having music every day is really critical Mm -hmm. to me. Having being organized so I can measure my success is really important. Mm -hmm. And so I like to have a list every day. Mm -hmm. So I know I accomplished something. I'm definitely like a county worker's kid that I'm like, okay, did I actually do something that I can check off? Mm It's really important. I think exercise is really important. I have not been good about it, but I find it puts me in a much better mental space and I can feel the difference. Like, when I'm not doing it. And then I try to listen because it's really easy when you're a CEO to spend the whole day talking. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think even people know this, but I sit for an hour and I just don't talk for an hour. And I try to be purposeful about that because then I'm not like preparing what I'm going to say, mm-hmm. but I'm like an hour a day, I'm just listening. And so no matter what's going on, I try to schedule for myself an hour a day to listen. Is that um in, in a single sitting or just like throughout the day mostly it's in a single sitting and so because one is like sometimes i just sit in my office and listen to what people are talking about yeah 
And other times I sit in a meeting and I don't talk for most of the mm-hmm. meeting, which is much harder when you're a CEO, I think, to do. But I find if I don't, if I don't work on my listening skills, mm-hmm. I'm actually not a good leader because you miss the verbal cues. You miss when someone feels uncomfortable. You miss when someone feels inspired. Mm-hmm. And so I try to make that part of my training to listen mm-hmm. and to like make sure I'm a listener. Yeah. Yes. So what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? The best way? So I just joined Twitter and Instagram. Okay. Is that a good way? See, this is where you're better. That's good. You t- what do you tell people? I don't know. I tell them all my Instagram, Twitter. I don't even know. It's Snapchat. This is Ruben Harris. But oh, that's Harris. me though. But for you. Um, Ruben, will you t- I don't know. I'm on Instagram. I don't know. But um, Pedro E.L. I think it's on Twitter, Twitter. That's my Twitter. That's Twitter. Yeah. I think better at 43. Yeah. That's my. See, that's, that's my Instagram. goal. I'm getting. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing I just say before I go uh-huh. is I also think we talk a lot about like women and people of color. I think being over 25 is a big deal in tech. That's true. I'm 31. So, 31. We went to YC. Diane and I were both like, you know, were we 40 or late 30s? And we were joking because I came in my minivan. I just dropped off my kid. I came in my minivan. Diana had on these flower jeans. And we were like, we are never going to get in because we came in and these people had products. They were all like 20 something years old. And we came in and we were like, and we have an idea and we're not engineers. Um, So, but anyway, so yeah, I have Twitter now and it's Phaedra E-L. And you just said my Instagram and those are the best, better at 43. That's the next couple of years. I'm trying to set my goals. Yeah, no, we look forward to seeing what you got going on yeah. in the future. Appreciate you taking the time to see Thanks with so us. Happy and yeah. Let's break in. Happy let's, Sunday. Happy let's Sunday. Break in. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, Encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.